from hospitals to education to manufacturing business, everybody's business is digitized. Everything's on a, on a mobile device or a laptop. So if that is digitized, cybersecurity becomes the number one way to protect not just data, but your clients, disruption, making sure things work. It's literally the alarm system of your, of your, your, your digital business. So it's not a nice to have. It is, man, you better have this. Otherwise, there's going to be some problems. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and our guest today is Tony Petricola, a lifelong Clevelander who is extremely passionate about the land and now a three-time Cleveland founder as well. In the midst of the first internet wave in 2001, and in an effort to make website development easier for those organizations looking to create their first online presence, Tony started his first company in Cleveland called 10th Floor, which developed a web application management software solution and was later acquired by Bridgeline Digital out of Boston in 2008. In 2014, Tony started vloan.com for Union Home Mortgage in the direct-to-consumer financing world, which was a direct competitor to Rocket Mortgage. And most recently, and where we spend most of our time in the conversation today, in 2019, Tony co-founded and is president of Agile Blue, a cybersecurity technology company. One of the many things we discuss are the nature of technology waves, which Tony has been successful in identifying over his endeavors, spanning the internet, direct-to-consumer financing, and cybersecurity. I very much enjoyed hearing Tony's perspective on the Cleveland ecosystem, the ever-changing landscape of cybersecurity, and how he's planning to navigate it and help organizations stay ahead of threats with Agile Blue. Please enjoy my conversation with Tony Petricola. I've been looking forward to, to this conversation. I think it's always really fascinating to hear um, from someone who's started not just more than one, but three businesses here in Cleveland. So to get your perspective on on the ecosystem we have here, very much looking forward to diving into that with you. So thank you for coming on, Tony. Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. I appreciate it. I think it's always helpful just to start with the path that that brought you here and through the lens of, of entrepreneurship. And, and so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what that, that path was for you and 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 what drew you to the world of, of startups and, and building your, your own companies? Yeah, I appreciate that. I definitely, I don't know why, I definitely don't use the word entrepreneur with me. I don't know why. I got my start at Apple as a systems engineer back in way back in 1997 before Apple was even remotely cool. We, we, we were still really bad back then. <laughs> and obviously that culture there is, is incredible about you know starting your own businesses and things like that. So I was with Apple for a few years and then came back to Cleveland. I lived in, in Chicago and came to Cleveland and uh, with some other folks, a couple other folks, um, started a business called 10th Floor. And, and this was 2001. So if you think about it, we're trying to build, trying to build the internet, right? That's what we did. We, we built websites, or as people called them back then, web pages for people. Um, <laughs> so that's how we got our start. And um, to, be, to be very candid, it was just a business that we put our heart and soul into and grew it. And it was amazing and had amazing people, amazing customers, and um, we're lucky enough to uh, to be acquired. So that kind of got got me started into uh, the world of starting a business and growing businesses. And you you stuck with it, you know. It didn't it didn't deter you the process of of taking something and and building it from zero. What about that kept you wanting to try again? And maybe tell us a little bit about VLone and and kind of what transpired after that. It's obviously an incredible challenge to build something from the ground up. Like day one, you're sitting at your desk or wherever you're sitting, fake wood desk because you're not you know, rich enough to have a real wood desk yet. And you got to think about everything you got to do, man. Like you can get an email address and you need, first of all, try to find a domain that works, right? Everything's taken and you know, all those little things. But you, know, you see something literally being started from, from the ground up, but you got to have a great idea. So with 10th floor was literally building people's websites back in, back in 2001. So obviously tremendous demand. When it came to VLone, under the umbrella of Union Home Mortgage here in Cleveland, who does tremendous work, you, know, you see their advertising everywhere, great philanthropy they do. 
Um, it was creating a, a uh, retail competitor, excuse me, a consumer direct competitor to, to Rocket. So you think about that, you're taking on a behemoth, someone everybody knows. Actually, it's almost a verb like, like Google, right? Rocket Mortgage. So to, to create something from the ground up with tremendous people in a very staid industry, but really coming up with ways to make things more efficient was a great challenge as well. And that led me um, into, um, I mean, let, let's, let's just be candid. Cybersecurity is, uh, is, is, is pretty crazy right now. And it's not just because of what's happening in current day <laughs> with the Russia-Ukraine war. Small and mid-sized businesses are just getting clobbered, absolutely clobbered with cybersecurity whether it's stolen uh, data or maybe even worse, operational disruption. So that's why we started Agile Blue to uh, create a product for the small and mid-sized business to detect cyber attacks, hopefully before they're, uh, uh, they're compromised. So pull on a bunch of threads here. Cybersecurity is obviously, it sounds very important. My, my guess is most people have not thought about or engaged with the concept that much other than if something bad happens to them, uh, where it's probably too late, or they maybe read about a bunch of credit data getting leaked and, and these sorts of things. Like, Talk us through a little bit of the backstory here. How would you describe cybersecurity more at a macro level and its importance and the aspects of somewhat to someone like fully uninitiated? It's a great question. You know what's funny about cyber? Rarely does it have its own budget. You know, usually it's under the CIO's IT budget. It's not its own budget. And rarely does it have its own executive running it, right? You know, its own CISOs, you know, the, um, the chief information security officer. So those are rare, especially in midsize and small businesses, right? Maybe larger ones have it, but the, but the midsize and small don't. So um, it, they look at it as an, as an expense. Of course, I would argue being a business owner, it's not an expense, like, look, lawyers are expensive, but you got to have them. Accountants are very expensive, but you got to have them. Whoever else you depend on for critical information, you got to have them. Cyber is, if you think about every business, no matter what you do, hospital to, and, and obviously COVID just, just accelerated this, but from hospitals to education to manufacturing business, everybody's business is digitized. Everything's on a, on a mobile device or a laptop. So if that is digitized, Cybersecurity becomes the number one way to protect not just data, but your clients, disruption, making sure things work. It's literally the alarm system of your, of your, your, your digital business. So it's not a nice to have. It is, man, you better have this. <laughs> Otherwise, there's going to be some problems. So, you know, what we do, we monitor our clients' entire digital infrastructures 24-7. So the whole point is to know there's a potential breach before there's a breach. And let's just say something does happen, knock on my fake wood desk here. It's to know something happened. How many times you read in the Wall Street Journal that a business was, was hacked in like November? And it's like, uh, that's five months ago. Where have you been? Well, they've either been hiding it or they just didn't know. And actually, there's a law in Congress actually getting passed right now. Well, maybe. Who knows what Congress does? That's going to make it, uh, going to put a timeline, a time limit for businesses to say to their customers and their stakeholders, we've been hacked. And it's going to have a have a pretty stiff penalty with it. So where I think we're starting, if, if you see laws and regulations pick up like this, which they are everywhere else in the world, except the US, you're going to see much more attention paid to cybersecurity. If we make our way back to the, the founding of, of Agile Blue, I'd love to get a, a fuller picture of considering your, your background spanning web pages to mortgages to cybersecurity, spanning multiple industries, what was the founding insight you had there? Why focus on this particular challenge? As I'm sure you were contemplating a lot of things at the time, trying to figure out what you wanted to do next. What, what, what were the questions you were trying to answer? And what, what really drew you and, and led you to the opportunity that Agile Blue is now working to, to solve? Well, it's, it's market need. I mean, look at um, one of the greatest businessmen, entrepreneurs of all time, like a guy like Elon Musk. I mean, this guy's trying to save the climate, get us to space bore holes into the ground to make transportation uh, you know, below ground even easier. You're talking about incredible ideas, but really those are extraordinarily disparate as well, right? The guy's mind's going in a million directions. Well, my mind doesn't. I'm not built like Elon. Uh, I'm a neophyte compared to him. But in all three of those instances where we were in the markets during those times, 2001 with websites, 2014 with consumer direct you know, mobile device, um, your mortgages, 
what we look at as the next wave of wars is cyber. You know, we're, we th- feel we're in the tremendous position. So all three of those businesses saw a wave coming, a lift coming to that industry, and it needed a change, a digital change. And we were there, you know, in 01 with 10th Floor. We were there in 14 with VLone and, and now with cyber. And I think this war that you just saw kick off, I mean, obviously, it's very kinetic now, unfortunately, for the people of, of Ukraine. It's very kinetic. But it began cyber. It began with critical infrastructures being taken down in the Ukraine. And I think that's the next war footing you're going to see is cyber wars, right, which still have tremendous impact on populations. So it's one thing to identify the wave there, and it's a whole other thing to get on the surfboard and and ride it. How do you get up to speed in in this space, recognizing the opportunity that's there? Uh, And what kind of takes you from zero to one as you think about maybe what your your first break was with Agile Blue? Yep. Um, Smart people, right? Surrounding yourself with, with, with subject matter experts who know the business. You look at mortgage, you've never seen a more complex industry. That What they deal with, mortgage people, from valuations to numbers to what's down payment and PMI and all these things, like it is mind-blowing. And a lot of it is still done on paper, believe it or not. It's mind-blowing. So it's surrounding yourself with really smart people who know that industry. And hopefully you're coming in with just maybe some ideas to make things a little bit easier, better, more secure in, in a digital realm. And that's what my three companies basically did is they, they allowed us the ability to, uh, to do that is just take things maybe and, and innovate them a little, bit, a little bit more. When you look at Agile Blue right now, it's not like we're just the most innovative cybersecurity company in the history of mankind, but we think we're solving a tremendous problem for a lowest common denominator, small and mid-sized business and, and giving them a chance to um, you know, hopefully uh, beat back some of these hackers. So I, I think it's always helpful to have a, a common vocabulary when when discussing some of these things. Um, and there are a few terms that I think might be important to define as we just work through Agile Blue in a little more depth. Maybe you can just describe as we maybe approach it from the lens of breach detection, like what is SOC? What is XDR? What what are the risks that you are helping to mitigate? And we'll just set the stage there and and, and work from that. Yeah, well, you know, all these uh, acronyms, man, they, uh, they probably, <laughs> you know, people listening probably think they just mean more money. I don't know what they mean, but they mean more money for me. SOC is Security Operations Center. So, it's, you know, again, small and mid-sized businesses can't afford to have a 24-7 team of people looking at data to see if they have a potential cyber attack. So like anything else in this world that's an as-a-service or people outsource, we're that outsource uh, Security Operations Center as a service. 24-7 globally for our customers, and we have customers globally. And that allows us to do things like XDR, which is extended detection and response. So when we first start seeing, I'm going to give you a great example. We're like an alarm system. Like, you know, if you're at your house and you have an alarm system, I see your window in the background there. If somebody starts trying to open it and, and you know, do a little bit of a home invasion on you, hopefully you got an alarm that goes off uh, or you're able to defend yourself and have a big crazy dog or something. But as those alarms start going off, think about it digitally. That's what our technology is doing. It's knowing somebody's creeping around outside. It's knowing somebody's probably by that window and maybe just about to start opening that window. So it's that early detection because the earlier you're able to do anything, you're able to mitigate your risk. And that's what cyber is all about is mitigating risk. So I, I think that's a, a perfect segue to, to maybe really step-by-step step take us through from start to finish what the process looks like for breach detection. You know, when you're when you're monitoring the 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 shady character in the window, like what what are you actually looking for? What how do you parse signal from the noise? Because there's an inc- incredible amount of of noise with regards to monitoring these systems and knowing what is a legitimate threat versus what is just a you know out there as as data. I mean, there is just terabytes and terabytes of noise every day of the week. So you know, really good technology, machine learning that understands anomalous behavior. So we all know normal behaviors of your devices, of, of the way you actually interact with your, with your computer and software every day of the week. But that anomalous behavior allows us to understand where there could be a potential issue. And then you see these gangs, these ransomware gangs. I mean, these people have their businesses. They have HR departments, marketing departments, recruiters that recruit their hackers. I mean, these people are so well-funded. It's such a big business. 
and they're creating ransomware as a service. They're creating technology for other hackers to use to hack. And um, it's our job to detect that ransomware and ransomware as a service. Again, those early indicator, those early warning system lights that go off to let us know that something could potentially be happening to one of our customers. When you both starting the company and also today, how do you stay abreast what the threats are? The, you know, the space technology generally changes so quickly. The cyber security world, I think, changes even more quickly. And it seems like it's often for the defenders a reactive thing rather than something proactive. And, and from the hacker's perspective, the nefarious actors out there just constantly innovating in bad <laughs> ways to, to kind of leverage the, the gaps that, that they've identified. How do you think about the, the space and how quickly it changes and, and trying to ultimately get ahead of, of where the threats come from? Yeah. Well, A, they're coming from everywhere. Uh, B, yeah, you're right. It's changing throughout the day. So how do you stay in charge? Because you're not on offense, right? We're not offensive players right now, right? We are, we play in defense. We think we're pretty, pretty good on defense, better than the Browns were this year, but we think we're pretty good on defense. <laughs> and that's all we can do, man, is we just got to uh, continue to grow our defense, can, which is our technology, which is our people, and uh, try to stay a step, uh, a step ahead. Now, Easier said than done. Hackers are smart, persistent capitalists. No matter what country they come from, they're capitalists, right? You know, they're trying to make a dent. They know they can make a dent. And, and the U.S. And, and global systems are digitized. So the, 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 the playing field is not like, you know, 100 yards or 120 yards by, by 53, like a football field or something like that. It is so expansive. It's incredible. So the best you can do is play D. The best you can do is work with somebody who can help. And then, um, you know, you have to, um, you have to rely on, on, on good technology and, and good people. You can do th things like threat hunting, but even when you're threat hunting, you're still looking for things that could be potentially already happened, right? So it's a defensive, it's a defensive game. And um, sometimes uh, the defensive guys get beat. It's unfortunate, but sometimes you get beat. Um, the, whole, the whole point, though, is to, uh, is to just make sure you're mitigating their risk. So I, I think it would be helpful to... Just get a, an overview of where the business is today. Uh, I know you've you've recently closed on a on a funding round here in Cleveland for about two point two five million dollars. Congratulations on that, um, and would love to you know understand and, and go a bit a little deeper on that process. But you know where is Agile Blue today? What does the organization look like? And we can work from from there. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the round was a little closer to uh, right at three. Look, we, we had the ability, my co-founder and, and, and me, to find some uh, partners that make a difference, not just with dollars, but experience and connections and networks and things like that. So we actually um, worked with a group of individual investors throughout the United States to come into this round and, and also some folks in New York um, through Tribeca, which is a, man, just tremendously smart guys, understand cyber who came in on this round as well. So we, we thought it was more advantageous to where we are in our life cycle. If we ended up doing a, an A round, um, this would probably be pre-A round. You might look at this at something like that. But yeah, we wanted guys who are going to, we wanted the team of investors who are going to be able to bring more than just capital. I think capital's out there. It's how can they help grow the business through their knowledge, through experience, through networks. And that's really what was the most important thing to us at this stage of our, of our, of our funding. So as you think about that transition as a, a capitalized company versus working through the earlier stages, what, what were you trying to prove or validate in the market up to this point? And then we can follow up with that. You know, what was the vision you were painting when you, when you raised this round of financing for the future? It's a great question. Number one, that the model is going to work and pay off, right? So that it has the ability to scale. You know, you're not looking for a million of ARR or two million of uh, annual recurring revenue. You know, you're trying to you you have big you have big goals. So can the model sustain it? Number one. Number two, can you can you you have great technology that people want to buy and 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 use, right? So you got to have some early customers who have good names, who can put the technology through the paces, not just to be a referenceable customer, but also to give you some confidence that you can, you know, you can help these people when they're about to get attacked, whether they're a hospital or a bank or anything like that. Trust me, you don't want to be the, on the receiving end of a call knowing one of your customers got hacked, right? 
you just don't want that. So it's proving all that out. And then when you think you understand your model and you think you know how you how to scale it and, and you have that, that strategy placed, it's finding that partner to help get you to that next level. And then obviously doing that whole thing again. Okay, now how do we go from X to this Y that's way out there? And what, do we, what kind of partner do we need to get to that next level? And that's when organizations can continue to look around. Is it a strategic? Is it, is it, a, is it more of a venture capital firm? Is it, are you at the stage to bring in private equity? You know, you have options and you got to understand them all because dilution hurts and equity, you know, giving up equity hurts and convertibles hurt. And, but you don't look at it like that. You look at it as these are my partners to help grow my business. And instead of looking at it uh, in a negative spin, it's a tremendous spin. Again, not just from capital. I don't just be capital. It's got to have all these other uh, elements to it that will help grow this business. And so as you were you know, recruiting these, these partners essentially to, to help you build that business, what, what was the vision you were painting for the future? Like when you think about the, the vision for the future five years from now, you know, what, what is in retrospect the impact that you're hoping to have as it relates to, to this industry that you're working in? Probably less than than a, than a five year vision, maybe more like a three, because you know you can only fool yourself thinking thinking that far out. <laughs> it's hard to think a few out. months in advance, honestly. Yeah, we're on Elon Musk, man. He's already he, he's mapped out to like twenty thirty eight. Um, I'm worrying about uh, next Sunday. You know, it's a it's a little bit different mindset, but you know the picture we're painting is we are literally an invaluable platform that small and mid sized businesses don't necessarily have access to but need for the sustainability of their business. And, you know, when you can tell a story like that, that you have a model that works for the small guy, you have a model that can repeat for the small guy. And more importantly, that that person's going to place their trust in you. That's a great model. And if we can paint that story for our investors and also work with them on how do we expand that through partnerships, not just in the United States, but globally, how do we bring this product to other parts of the world that believe it or not have have a harder time with technology than than we do sometimes in the U, in the United States and and other other countries in this world are growing even faster than the U.S. because they were third world countries before or just getting on the digitization boom and different things like that. So we've seen a lot of success uh, globally, and uh, with that success, they know they need more cyber products. So that's the vision we paint, and I think our investors like that, and they know we can scale. I think they know we can scale. We're a couple of guys who've done it in the past. And, um, you know, there's nothing that substitutes for a great team. So you can have great technology, but if the team is not good, you got a problem. We happen to have really solid technology and fantastic people. And that's, you know, that's, uh, man, we feel blessed every day to know that. Yeah, I, I definitely do want to ask you more about recruiting and, and your approach there, specifically here in Cleveland. But We'll, we'll circle back to that one. Uh, a few other thoughts, uh, questions I have just about kind of the nature of the work you're doing and, and how you think about the space. One of them is, you know, as difficult as it is to parse signal from noise from the data itself, my perception working a little bit on the compliance side just at, at my own company is there's just as much noise from cybersecurity vendors out there, right? So how do you think about competition how do you think about differentiation of the product and where, where do you see from specifically the competition perspective, where your, your moat is? It's a great question. So I always answer it like this and I, and what I'm about to say, I stole, this isn't a Tony quote original, but you know, definitely don't obsess over customers. We obsess over our customers. Okay. So competitors are going to be there. Can't obsess over them. Let's focus on our customers and what they need. So that's 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 really important point, and we try to live that every day. Sometimes you can get blinded by that, but we try to live that every day. One of our competitors, and not really a direct competitor, but in the space, huge company, tremendous success, really good tech. They have a tagline, and it says, we stop cyber attacks. And I love that one because my follow-up always is, no, you don't, because if you did, everybody would use it, and there'd be no more cyber attacks, period. And that's it. Everybody would be safe. So we know that's impossible, and it's marketing taglines like that that give small and mid-sized businesses, you know, they're going to push back a little bit. Like, well, these guys have been hacked, and you know, maybe they were using it. So why, you know, why wouldn't we? We don't tell our customers that. I can't predict they're not going to get hacked or attempted. What I can promise them though is, twenty-four-seven, we're going to be monitoring them. We're going to let them know when something looks looks um, looks like it's uh, it's getting anomalous. 
And if something goes down, we're going to be able to move fast with them to help mitigate their risk. And that's that's the promise we can make to them. And that's the promise we've lived on now for the last couple of years for, for our clients. Um, so competitors tend to say, we're the greatest, we're going to stop everything, we're the baddest. Fine. With that is great marketing, probably expensive, and it probably doesn't always work, right? We've seen that. Nothing works foolproof 100% of the time. I think we speak very plain spoken to our clients. A lot of our clients can also be the CEO of a 200-person company. And he or she is so busy running a business, if you got on the phone with them and started talking about SOC, XDR, they're just going to hang up. You got to talk about how their business needs protection, needs monitoring, and just, and just speak to them like, 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 like it's plain. That's how you obsess over a customer, not over a competitor. Given the impossibility of solving the cybersecurity problem, the, the ever-growing threatscape, the inevitability of, of something transpiring for, for a given organization, how do you, as an organization, deal with the accountability, right? If something is going to happen, and I'm, I'm sure you've had situations perhaps where, where it has, how, how do your customers respond? And you, know, you mentioned holistically taking them through this process of identifying a threat. Maybe that threat is legitimate. Maybe something has actually happened. How do you work through those situations when it, it is actually a threat? To be candid, I mean, it's, it's at the forefront. So over the last couple of months, Log4J was a, was a, is still affecting companies globally. There was some proactive things we could do for Log4J, run some, some, some scans and some tests to see where our customers had some vulnerabilities, and it's getting out ahead. And by the way, if something went down and transpired, it's getting on the phone with that customer or email, however we're, 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 we're communicating immediately. Here's what we're seeing. Here's what's happening. Here's what you have to, you know, you have to think about doing. So it is all about speed with that customer and just letting them know exactly where they lie. Customers are very smart people. They read the Wall Street Journal. They watch CNN or Fox or whatever. They know cybersecurity is an issue. If the government can't keep people out of the Department of Defense, they know they can get beat with their cybersecurity for their business. What they're looking for is honesty. They're looking for a partner. And they're looking for if something goes down to know they get, I got a partner that's going to notify them and be able to take steps very quickly. That's what I think they're being realistic about. What are, what do you find rather are the biggest misconceptions people have about, I think maybe both cybersecurity at large and, and maybe the, the nature of the work that you're doing? What do people not get? Yeah, no, I think at the end of the day, they think, well, credit card's already been stolen. Like, yeah, yeah, I, my, my name's all over the internet. What do, what do, I, what do I care? Believe it or not, for a business, it's not just about the data. Um, it's a huge part of it. Don't, I'm not trying to minimize it. Think about brand reputation. If you have a history of being hacked or been hacked and somebody finds this out and, and they, you have a competitor, maybe they go to that competitor instead. So brand reputation. I still think the biggest is, is, is less on the data stealing and more on the operational uh, disruption. Small and mid-sized businesses, the more you disrupt their business, and by, by mid-size, I mean under 2,000 employees. The more you disrupt their business, they have a hard time coming back from that, right? I mean, there's businesses that have gone out of business, and I'm not going to be here big doomsday or and say everybody's going out of business. Not, not at all. But it can happen. If your operations are down two, three days or more, or just a day, what does that do to revenue? What does that do to your clients and how they, they perceive you? What about your employees, so the operational effects could even be more disastrous than just the, stole, the stealing of data or paying a ransomware. Those are all very important, but more and more we're seeing businesses disrupted and that's actually taking a bigger toll, especially these days with logistics, with supply chains, it's affecting the world since COVID. You're seeing a lot of activity on supply chains and you're seeing a lot of disruption there. Are there, and this, this is really just out of, out of curiosity, are there threats that you are able to gain insight into by having kind of a multitude of, of organizations that you're working with that only come to, to light at scale that you don't even see at an individual organizational basis? Not necessarily, but the correlation of data and what I mean by that is not just looking at a laptop or a server or the cloud but taking all the data we're seeing for an organization and maybe one that's in a specific industry, such as, you know, when non-PETCHA or PETCHA ransomware was attacking healthcare, this might've been like Q4 
when you know that's attacking them, you can focus on your healthcare customers and, and try to get out ahead of it, right? Since the Russian-Ukraine war started, the Conti ransomware, which is a Russian ra- ransomware gang, has been proliferating huge. In fact, they had an internal strife where some were for the war, some were against it. And the ones that were against it took their source code and published it on the internet. Um, so they had a little internal war going on there. But now you're seeing that proliferate tremendously, right? Because of the war. So, um, you know, hackers are also very opportunistic and they de- definitely attack in, in industry groupings as well. So not necessarily at scale, it, it does help, but understanding the industry and then correlating all that data to see all the activity happening at an organization's digital infrastructure. What have you found that is maybe the most surprising from an industry perspective of who are like the most prepared for this and who are the least prepared at an industry level? Oh my goodness. I don't, I mean, uh, <laughs> I would like to say you hope government, healthcare, <laughs> financial are the most prepared. I might argue that they're not, and we'll leave it at that. But the people who are responsible for life or death, I mean, someone died during COVID when a ambulance um, was hacked. The GPS, this was in Germany, not the United States, was hacked, sent the ambulance on a wild goose chase, and the person had COVID, needed to be put on a respirator. They didn't get to the hospital fast enough, and the person actually passed away. That's where, where, where hacking is not just stealing of data. You're talking life and death. And by the way, if you can shut down grids and power and water and, and the resources we need to live, forget about making our lives uncomfortable. What about the elderly or folks who have issues that need those things to live? That's where life and death starts coming into things. So again, on those critical infrastructures and, and on healthcare, you hope those are the folks most protected. And by the way, a lot of them work really, really hard at staying safe but they have big targets on their backs, right? And they have a lot of attack surfaces as well. So, um, you know, those present a big challenge. You did just outline the, the severity of the stakes there. I was, I was going to ask, you know, what, what keeps you up at night as you think about growing Agile Blue and, and thinking about, you know, that, that three-year time horizon and, and the growth you hope to have? What, what are the things that you foresee as the biggest challenges and that, that you worry about? It's just, it's just anything happening bad to one of our clients. I mean, I, I'll just put it like that. I love our clients. I, I really believe if you obsess over your clients, you'll have a tremendous business. And if anything happens to any of them, which could happen, you know, unfortunately, it, it's, that's what keeps you up at night. That's what makes you, you know, worry and wonder and, 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 but, but continue to drive forward to create technologies, put together a tremendous team to try to stay ahead to keep these folks you know, as secure uh, and monitored as possible. That's that's all you can do, Jeffrey. And I'm sure you see that in your business. I'm sure every business tries to focus on their customers and that's all you can do. You just don't want to see anything bad happen to your customers, right? No, absolutely. It's interesting. I think that just the, the nature of the business you are in specifically is about the mitigation of those bad things, which may be like abstracted is what a lot of businesses are about, but very, very explicitly, it's about, mitigating those those risks. Yeah. I mean, a bad thing has to happen for us to be in business, unfortunately, right? But, you know, there's a lot of bad people out there and there's evil people out there, as we all know. And uh, it, it does employ a very large uh, percentage of us to uh, try to mitigate that. You know, you have your police force and, and fire and um, they're doing all amazing things. And then you got, you know, the, digi- you know, the people on the digital side trying to keep everybody as secure and safe as possible. Um, it's, it's very difficult work. And the people who work really hard at it, man, um, I'll tell you, they're passionate about it. Very passionate about it. What, what has been the, the hardest part of, of building the organization so far? You know, I think just like anything, and I can relate this to 10th floor back in 2001, uh, B-Loan uh, in 14. It's, it's the people. I, I don't care what business you're in. It's about the people. If somebody says it's not, they don't understand business. And you want to hire good people, people who care, people who want to grow. And people who have a tremendous uh, sense of culture. And that's what you want at your company. And when you're in Cleveland, I love Cleveland, okay? Uh, Obviously, started three companies here. Love it. Sometimes you do have to expand. Like you said, you came here to Cleveland. You got to expand your recruiting. And now you have to have a little bit more open mind of where people actually work. As a somewhat older person, you know, sometimes you think everybody's got to be in my office and I got to see everybody every day. Yeah, well, life doesn't work like that anymore. And you got to be a little bit more flexible to where people are, not only geographically, but how they choose to work, meaning 
they might want to work from home and work digitally and not be in the office. So those things, I, I will say this, it's made things harder, but it's actually leveled the playing field where we now can recruit people from all over the place, giving us more access to talent. And, and Cleveland has talent. Don't get me wrong. Great talent. Awesome people. Smart. There's cyber talent here. There's just not enough, right? There's everybody needs cyber. So they're all poking at the same people. So we do need to expand our, our, um, our geography. Now I'll pull on this reflections and, and learning thread a bit more. You know, if you thought about the early days, you know, whether it be Agile Blue, 10th floor, VLone, when of course you were working hard to build at just that rapid pace, if I said to you, you have to go back and do it all again, like which part of that building process would you be like, oh God, I don't want to have to go through and learn these lessons again <laughs> when you think about building these companies and, and the products respectively? I'm going to tell you something. The greatest thrill is signing your first deal. And the greatest thrill is every deal you sign after that. Like, you know, by nature, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more aggressive and I'm a sales guy. And, and there's nothing more fulfilling than that. The worst thing you have to do, especially as a young company, because all young companies see this. And if, if, if you're a young company and you say you haven't, then you're lying, is an unhappy customer. And you got to deal with it. And that customer, you know, if you don't deal with it correctly, whatever the problem may be, that could be your brand. That could be your reputation. You know, you lose a customer. If you lose it the right way and, and, and you just understand it's not the right circumstance, that can help. You can learn from that. But if you're a jerk to them and you don't, ah, we'll find new customers. Uh, by the way, you're going out of business because you're not going to just, because that's going to get around. And, <laughs> and let me tell you something. At 10th floor, didn't have to worry about that. You know, there really wasn't chat rooms and social stuff. Now, if you mess up, before I was able to probably tell my wife what happened, it's already on Twitter, Facebook, and whatever book that I don't even know exists to take down your business. So today, it's even more important to love your customers. I'll also say this, building accounting systems is a pain. <laughs> it's a pain. You got to have them, obviously, <laughs> but building accounting systems, that could be a little bit of a pain for a, for a startup. So those are the, that, that, that's the two things I would say. That's fair. I think that there's a... I, I feel that one. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? It's, just, it's like, come on, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. So j just thinking more reflections on the, the Cleveland ecosystem at large, what, what is your take on, on what we do well here and, and maybe where we need to, to do better? Yeah. You know, a long time ago, um, when I was at 10th floor, the city of Cleveland was looking for someone to redo their website. You know, we were one of the people they considered. We're a local company. There were some other local Cleveland companies too that did great work. And they chose a company at Denver. And when I saw that 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 bid got assigned to that, you know, I'm also Italian and have a heavy temper and I, I lost it, right? So I did this op-ed thing in Crane. <laughs> they did this article on us. I said, this is ridiculous. Like Cleveland organizations, especially the larger ones, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, don't necessarily support the startup ecosystem as much as other areas that I've seen. And let me give you an example. Some of the bigger companies in town, you would think there'd be programs to say, okay, you know, we, we know you might not do all your cybersecurity with these guys, but can you do a piece? Can you do a, um, you know, can you do a proof of concept? There's some companies that do, but there's a lot that don't. So the, the only thing I don't think Cleveland does tremendous is I don't think the larger companies work hand in hand with the startups and the smaller companies who are looking to get big and hopefully be a provider to them. I don't think they do. Companies in Cleveland want to go with the sure thing. And that might just come down to being, you know, more Midwestern, a little more adverse to risk. You know, if somebody went with IBM, they're not going to get fired. If they went with Agile Blue and something happens, they might get fired, right? So I think that's how they think. Now, the thing about Cleveland that's amazing is just how genuine everyone is. It's just a great place, tremendous ecosystem. People talk like it's a cheap place to find labor and stuff like that. It's not cheap. Nothing's cheap, especially for good people, right? These people here are great. And, and the more you can build your team around the folks here in Cleveland, you know you have people who are passionate. They're diehards about everything. You know you're going to build a culture that you want. I just wish some of the larger organizations would work a little bit more tightly with the startup community because I think it would open their mind a little bit more and it would give these companies a leg up to really push to the next level. I'm not saying all of them do, but I, but I do believe a lot of them do. And that's my, my, my story from back in 2004 when they chose a company out of Denver. I still haven't gotten over that, obviously, like 18 years later. So oh, I'm, I'm going to dig up that article for sure. Yeah. Probably there. <laughs> this was Cranes that. a long time ago. Uh, no, I look forward to reading that. Because I, I think it's, 
it's it's helpful to to have that that lens right we can we can do better totally and i didn't even care if it was my company be be a competitor but be a cleveland company let's see those jobs like circulate here let's you know let's have that that talent done here and people always say made in america awesome it could also be made in Cleveland, right? So why not work more with companies who are building the ecosystem here? I think there's got to be some pride in that, but I, I don't think there's as, as much as you uh, as you think. That'd be my only. That'd be my only thing. Yeah, that just kind of sparked interest in. Uh, do you, with Agile Blue, do you ever sell to governments, like local governments, as a as an industry that you maybe had uh, outlined is is not the most prepared for. <laughs> The, the coming wave of, of cyber threats, who, who are you selling to? We do. Uh, we do have some uh, state uh, and federal government clients. Um, really, we're selling to, to, to mid-sized businesses in financial, healthcare, PCI, meaning they're collecting commerce and things like that. So credit cards, that's where we tend to focus our business. We have a lot of law firms too. Law firms are, you know, they have a lot of data, man, a lot of confidential data. Everybody mm -hmm. wants law firm data. Um, but, um, you know, law firms could be somewhat unprepared as, as well. And um, it's just, you know, by nature of their structure. But we do work with governments both uh, here in the United States and um, outside of the United States. Got it. When you uh, took your business out, did you get a lot of help from proof of concepts, early engagements, working in the ecosystem in Cleveland with some of the larger companies to help get you going? Yeah, on that front, I, I think we were incredibly fortunate. At actual, you know, we we got off the ground really only because we worked very closely with university hospitals here in Cleveland, with Metro Health here in Cleveland to, to ultimately not only validate conceptually what we were thinking about in the space from, you know, a credentialing perspective, the thesis we have, if you will, about, about the problem space and how much friction there is in the process of onboarding doctors and, and clinicians at health systems, but actually building the product and getting it to a point where at a minimum, we're meeting the base requirements for, for credentialing, for privileging, for onboarding a, a clinician in compliance with all of the regulatory considerations. It's not a, a low bar that was set by what we're trying to build as a, an MVP. I mean, frankly, we would not be here today as a company without the, the early partnerships that we had here in Cleveland. So I, we, I think we were really fortunate on, on that front, but I, th I think other companies would benefit a lot from from having the opportunity to have those kinds of partnerships up front. Yeah, I also think, you know, larger companies like you just mentioned building the product, the proof of concept, the MVP, you know, they see a lot of things, so their advice could be very, you know, instrumental uh, in in helping that company get to the next level. So, I'm glad to hear it worked out for um for you guys, no doubt about it. Yeah, no, I'm incredibly grateful for the the time and effort and yeah, I don't, I don't know what the the right model at scale is for that across like an ecosystem. But it, I mean, ultimately, I think you just have to align the incentives, right? It, are are the are the larger organizations what what are they going to get out of it? You know, mm -hmm. as much as we'd love for them to do it altruistically and and just to help the startup ecosystem in in the city, respectively. But even here in Cleveland, like what what do what is uh, what are they getting out of it? What are they learning from the process? Financially, what is their upside? You know, just thinking through those kinds of of models because I, I think it does matter. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of them have the 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 proclivity to do it, and maybe just don't have the the right models to to follow to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely, and um, yeah, and and I don't mean to say, hey, you just need to buy from Cleveland companies and that's it. The Cleveland company can't satisfy <laughs> with me. Go elsewhere, my friend. Uh, I have no problem with that, but I just think there needs to be a little bit more thought to how they could potentially grow these this ecosystem. And, and, um, and by the way, it does happen with connections, right? Connections help, but not everybody has tremendous connections, especially young folks just getting started. Right. So some of these young entrepreneurs sometimes need a little bit of push like that. And there's nothing wrong with it. Look at the great entrepreneurs of this world. They've all had introductions to, you know, whether it's VCs in California or wherever, wherever they started and they got some pretty big bumps, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it only, it only helps the organization grow. And I will say, as a as a relatively newer comer to Cleveland, one of the things that I have found genuinely most positive about it is is the accessibility of people here. I find if you're genuine in your 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 outreach, just to to learn or to to meet someone or or to network, people are receptive and and will will open the doors that that you're trying to open. 
I would completely agree with you on that. And again, that goes back to what I said maybe 10 minutes ago. It's people are just genuine here. They really, they really are. And they, they do care and you don't get that in every city. Right. So uh, that's something Cleveland's very blessed with. No doubt about it. Yeah. So maybe I'll, we'll book in this conversation. Uh, I'll open the floor to you a little bit, just to kind of speak your mind. One prompting closing question is having kind of identified a, a few of the waves in, in the past, yeah, I know you're currently riding the the cybersecurity one, but what what do you see out there from an industry perspective in the future? What waves uh, have your attention? Any any other closing thoughts? You know, just being selfish right now, I I love the promise of Bitcoin. I love the promise of cryptocurrency. Not all of them. Some of them are scams. Some of them's fraud. Some of them you're going to lose your money. But the decentralized nature of currency and transactions and decentralized finance. I think it's tremendous. And I think it is definitely the wave of things. And, you know, don't get caught up in the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana or whatever you're into. Understand the promise it has. You know, you look at these applications and there literally could be the rails of the next next wave of thing. You know, the MasterCard, the visas, the rails, mm. how things happen. And, and that is really exciting to me. I will say this. I think regulation, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm not a huge, huge fan of regulation. Some regulation with the crypto markets could be good. And I think we might see that actually. Um, I think that could be actually a, a, a real path forward. So look, I think, I hope cyber, I'm, I'm involved with cyber for a long time. I hope our business flourishes and grows. And then if I have one last thing I might do before um, I move to Florida, pull my socks to the knees and you know start uh, complaining about <laughs> everything is getting a little bit more involved with cryptocurrency and some projects maybe around DeFi because I think that is very exciting stuff. And, and, a, and a wave to the future. There's that is that is there. You can see it. It just needs a couple more things to fall in place. And I can honestly say this: um, I follow the industry. I study it. I do a lot within it uh, personally. I think we were actually almost targeting and getting to the next level of some things, and then this war broke out, which really took a lot of attention from things away, and, and really refocused people's priorities, as it should, of course. But I, but I do believe we're literally on the doorstep of this next wave with decentralized finance and the blockchain. And I, I'm actually president of InfraGuard here in town. And we actually had a blockchain uh, meeting uh, in Q4. We had a lot of great folks from Chain Analysis Talk. Bernie Marino spoke. We had, a, we had a great speaker lineup. And the enthusiasm for a Zoom meeting in December it gathered was, was tremendous. So not only is there an appetite from, from me, I can tell you the appetite is very, very broad. No, I, I share the excitement. I've been following the space for a while. I guess the, the question I would ask you about it specifically is, and I'm sure you get some semblance of this question, but given how much of the recent ransomware is paid out and enabled by cryptocurrency in a way that maybe historically through you know, wires or, or institutionalized banks could be you know, pro, you know, prohibited, remediated, addressed in a way that allows for some recourse. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a little overblown is my perception, but but how do you think about the the growing role of crypto as a cyber threat? A, it's a little overblown, I agree. B, there's a use case there, right? Because it's easier to transact in Bitcoin anonymously if you do it right. Now, the Colonial Pipeline, remember they stored it in a um, exchange and the FBI was able to reverse I can't remember the dollar amount, so, so don't kill me on that one. Like four, five, six million bucks, they were able to reverse that transaction. So that's, you know, getting the FBI involved early can help. They can actually get money back. Now, is this going to deter cyber attacks? Obviously not. There was millions of cyber attacks before there was crypto, right? Before 2008 and before crypto started being exchanged on exchanges or used actually as a transaction mechanism. So look, is it a facilitating a little bit? It's made it easier. There's no doubt about it. But these guys are smart. If they want to take you down, they're going to figure out a way to get monetized in some way. So that's the way I'd answer that. But um, yeah, it's made things a little bit easier. But I tell you, when the FBI reversed some of the colonial stuff, that was a big wake up call to the bad guys saying, eh, this might not be uh, as foolproof as you thought, or you just need to think a little bit smarter about not storing this on an exchange. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll close it out with, the question that we ask everyone who, who comes on the podcast, which is not necessarily for your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for something that other people may not know about, your, your favorite hidden gems. If 
you will. My favorite hitting gem in 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 Cleveland. Man, it's hard now because I think everybody is experiencing Cleveland, especially from the uh, you know the food angle and the and the local area angle. I'll, I'll just say this, and it's because of my background. There's nothing more I think exciting. Not well, obviously when a Browns or Indians win, yeah, that'd be great. I'm just talking about from a <laughs> a feeling is a summer night in Little Italy. There's nothing like the smell, the food. I don't eat a lot of desserts, but I do when I go there. An espresso to end the night, great wine. La Dolce Vita opera night. Like, you know, you think about opera in Cleveland. I used to be on the board of the Cleveland Opera when there was an opera. This is a long time ago. Man, they do it on Friday nights in the summer. Like, come on, that is just awesome, right? So I think that's a gem that, of course, everybody knows Little Italy. How many people actually go there for opera night just to do something different and really just experience it? It's, uh, I'll tell you what, I think that's a gem. And again, not just because I'm Italian, not just because my dad came here from Italy, but I, I, I just love it. I just love that place. Oh, no, that's, that's awesome. What, what, what's yours? Oh, well, I mean, the beauty of the whole podcast is I've, I've collected this, you know, sure. hundreds of these hidden gems now. For, for me, it really, every time I think about it, it's the Metro Parks. I mean, across the board, I, Cleveland is underrated, but the, the Metro Parks are extraordinary. Totally. I just wish we did more with our lakeshore. I really do. That's, that's the only thing you can say. Oh, yeah. Do, don't, don't get me started on that. But yeah. Exactly. It, <laughs> Jeffrey, thank you so much for having me. I had fun. Me as well. Me as well. If folks have anything they would like to follow up with you about, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, just check us out on agileblue.com. And, you know, there's many ways to get in, in touch with us. I appreciate uh, you having us on tonight. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Tony. Thanks, Jeffrey. Take care. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. 